0: This is not everyone's favorite passage in Romans, I recognize that. But it's here before us as we're moving through Romans chapters 9 through 11 and and there's some things we can learn here. Paul says some surprising things in our passage, surprising if not unsettling depending on who you are. If you're a Jew, it is surprising if not unsettling to hear Jews were chosen by God in order for God to bless Gentiles. A Jewish unbelief becomes the portal through which Gentile belief happens. That can be an unsettling thing to hear, not just a surprising thing. And if we're Gentiles, and probably most of us in the room here are Gentiles, it's at least surprising, if not unsettling, to hear. Did you hear it in verses 21, 22? Note the kindness and severity of God. Verse 22, severity toward those who've fallen, that's the Jews, but God's kindness to you, Gentiles, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. You go I don't like that. I thought I was in this for good. What happened to, you know, no one can ever snatch them out of my father's hand and, and all of those other places for eternal security. I thought nothing could uh, change the, the outcome of the once-for-all finality of Jesus' life and death and resurrection applied to us through faith. Is Paul saying that we can lose this after all, that somehow God will turn on us? One of these days. Now keep in mind as we adjust our eyes to this that God never turned on Jews. He disciplined their unbelief and rebellion throughout their history. He he turned from them. Paul is saying to us here in this section of Romans, never completely, but He did turn from them to Gentiles in order to give us an opportunity to know Israel's God as our creator. And the father of, uh, of us through Jesus and, and receive his righteousness in Jesus Christ. And this wasn't a plan B. Paul has been saying through these chapters, this is the intention of God all along. But God did not turn on Israel. As we think of people being turned on, he didn't turn on Israel to get to us That's the overarching point of these chapters in Romans, lest we misconstrue his purposes and and put ourselves in the the center of this orbit that is the redemptive purposes of God. God has not abandoned the people that he started with. Now, we saw this early in chapter 11. If you'll go back for just a moment, uh, he says it very plainly in verse 2, the first sentence in verse 2 here in chapter 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected. But then you get to verse 15 here, which Hickman read, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, etc., and you go, which is it? He didn't reject them, and now he says in verse 15, uh, he did reject them. Well, whenever you have a which is it in Scripture, and you get a lot of these actually as you read through the Bible, you're being shown attention, uh, even a paradox. And rather than trying to solve tensions, we should live with them. We should live in them. This rejection talk in verse 15, it cannot mean rejection in the sense of God has turned on his original people forever and he might turn on us too. Watch out. There is a watch out to this passage. Behold the kindness and severity of God. There is a watch out here. We see it. But it's not along the lines, well, it's not along the lines that I'm about to read to you, okay? I'm going to keep this pastor unnamed in kindness to him. I don't want to throw him under the bus. Someday people will take stuff I've read and say, can't believe this guy in Memphis thought this. But nevertheless, the words of a pastor writing, and he's got Romans 11 in his mind. Listen to what he says. 2,000 years ago, God started a revolt against the religion he started. So don't ever put it past God to cause a, cause a groundswell movement against churches and Christian institutions that bear his name. If he was willing to turn Judaism upside down, don't think for a moment our institutions are safe from a divine revolt. I am convinced that even now there are multitudes of followers of Jesus Christ who are sick and tired of the church playing games and playing down the call of God. My travels only confirm that the murmurings of revolution are everywhere. I am convinced that there is an uprising in the works and that no one less than God is behind it." Now to be fair to him, I'm in step with the church needing a revolution, if by that you mean a reformation and and a revival. I would love to see that. But divine revolt, as this pastor is putting it, as he's framing Romans 11 here, our text, he's putting it as as sort of a divine revolt against the, the complacent church. And that's that's not really what's in view here in this passage. There is a watch out to this passage, as I said, but it's not it's not geared toward if a church isn't movement oriented enough, God uh, moves against it, and he and he catalyzes that movement by all of the people who are who are tired of playing church, you know. In fact, notice here in our text as you look at verses eleven through twenty four as a, a block of text, notice Paul actually says. This thing God did in turning to the Gentiles is the furthest thing from a revolt against Israel, actually, because the Gentiles are brought in on Israel's blessings. Blessings, furthermore, that Israel will be brought back into in some way, somehow, someday. The fact of it is stated here. We're not given a sequence or, or details to follow of how this might play out or how many, just that it will happen. All this about the olive tree. See that? Verses 17 to 24. Verses 17 to 24, just looking at that, Paul, Paul just to summarize it, it it's, a, it's a complexity in the argument, but for, for simplicity's sake, he's, he's using a grafting process, how, how little olive uh, shoots and sprigs would, would be grafted into mature trees. He actually reverses this process to reinforce this surprising point that even though Israel was unbelieving, Still, Israel is a good tree with a good root system of patriarchs and and covenants and, and promises and prophets. None of that gets cut down or burned up. God doesn't call in the stump grinders. We Gentiles, we, most of us, are Gentiles. We're the wild olive tree. God took sprigs from the wild thing and grafted it into the cultivated tree, even though that tree looks dormant. It's a surprising argument. Verse 24, the last verse in our section for today. For if you were cut off, verse 24, chapter 11, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, meaning this this is the opposite way anybody in the first century farmed olive trees. If you were From the wild olive tree grafted into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, he means Jews, be grafted back into their own tree? God has redemptive purposes ongoing for the people that he started with. Bottom line, that's what's going on. What Paul's talking about here in this section of Romans 11, let's put it under two headings. One heading is paradox. What is a paradox? And the other heading is tension. That's what we've got in this passage. In verses 11 to 24, we've got paradox and tension. Let's take the the paradox first, and then we'll get into what the tension is. What's the paradox? Look back at verse 11. "'So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means, rather through their trespass,' meaning their unbelief, all of the sins, unrighteousness, and self-righteousness that go into unbelief, through their trespass, verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And he says it again in verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. He talks down to verse 15 here, verses 11 to 15, about about the uh, Jewish unbelief being the the portal through which God brings about Gentile belief. Now, this is a... Uh, uh, not any way that anybody expected that it would go. It's a paradox. The paradox in this passage, simply put, is God uses unbelief to bring about belief. He did it in the first century with Israel. To Gentiles, he's still doing this in the ways he is today. God uses unbelief to bring about belief. God turns from Israel in order to save Israel ultimately. God turns to Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. It's not just said twice here in chapter 11. It was said up in chapter 10, verse 19. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. This is chapter 10, verse 19. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Jealous of what? They, jealous of of us, jealous? Why? Because we get the grace and the mercy of their God. Why is this important for Gentiles to square with? Because we're being shown right here we have nothing before God to boast in other than his grace and his mercy, and that's it. Gentiles have nothing to boast in but his kindness to us and don't ever forget it. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. I want us to try to think this out a bit into our own cultural context here. How God might be using the unbelief that we find around us today. We're believers, we're followers of the Lord Jesus, and we live in a... a a city and a state and a and a nation and you just draw the concentric circles out there if that that's that's largely unbelieving. We live in a form of religiosity and, and southern nominalism and 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 a, a churchianity kind of expression here. But nevertheless, when we when we look around us, how might God be using unbelief to bring about belief in our time to provoke, if you will, a jealousy for grace? among people who come to realize they don't have it and they need it, they even crave it. Our time today is dominated by a, a version of secularism that is marked by deep self-righteousness and hypocrisy. I've talked about this before. That. The, the moralism you find today, the, the, the easygoing outrage that people have, they're against this and this and this. People are, are more defined now by what they tend to be against than what they're for. And, and that that moralism, uh, it, it, it's, it's very self-righteous and hypocritical. You remember I've, I've told you in these chapters that the tragedy of Israel is that they came to believe in self righteousness. That's where they began to go off the rails. But American culture, by and large, is just like that now, only more so. What a very self righteous culture. The secularizing impulse is very moralistic, and yet it's very selective in that moralism. There are certain sins that you better not commit. And there are other sins that will turn and look the other way. I wrote about this in this month's newsletter. Some of you read that. From the angle of of how we are as a society, we're denouncing racism rightly for the sin that it is against God and man. we've we've come to the place where we just say, you know, enough. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. And yet we're leaving uh, gender and sex open for interpretation however anybody wants to to view that race is a fixed thing we're we're going to preserve the dignity and uh, of that but but gender we're going to consider to be fluid and and up to ourselves because we have this we've really hijacked God's purpose and design for for sex and sexuality and we've made this completely ours to do with as we want The governor of Virginia, you've thought about him because he's made news this week, loudly denounced for his blackface routine in medical school, but then not as loudly denounced, culturally considered, for his uh, allowance for infanticide as a doctor under Hippocratic oath. What is going on? Why all the outrage over one thing about him, And not as much outrage over the other. Secularism is about feeling good about ourselves. If not feeling superior about ourselves, the deeper root it takes in us. In secularism, you withhold forgiveness from people over which you need to feel superior. I don't care if, if your secularism is conservative or libertarian or liberal. It's all sin. And this idea that is very much part of our cultural context and that we pick up on and participate in, uh, we cannot allow ourselves to not feel superior, and that's why we don't forgive people their wrongs. It doesn't matter when the wrong happened. It doesn't matter whether certain of your offenses were long ago and, and maybe in memory now causes you deep regret and even shame, and you say, well, I, w- I would never do that today. What matters is you did it. We've got the evidence. You did it at some point in your life. You did what self righteous secularism cannot abide because public opinion is now set on constantly reassuring those who who get it of their moral superiority over lesser others. There is no mercy for people who don't get it. This is how unbelief enforces morality selectively, hypocritically. I'm not saying the church doesn't have our own selectivities and hypocrisies. We do, and I've talked about that from this pulpit. But thinking here about this context of how God can use unbelief to bring about belief, unbelief doesn't just make the world more unrighteous. It actually makes the world more self-righteous. Where we are culturally now is even if you admit you were wrong, in the past or in the present, you indicate some kind of remorse, regret, repentance, I I hate myself for, for being that, thinking that, doing that, saying that, whatever. That gets interpreted as, well, you're sorry because you got caught and you're just trying now to play to our sympathies, but there is no sympathy for you, you bigot. Now, there's all kinds of problems with this, and it's not new. Throughout history, those who have wielded that sword, always end up falling on it. This always backfires on societies that, that put this kind of, of outrage into practice and make this the moral standard. But the bottom line is the world right now and its outrage has nothing to offer people who transgress. And the despair that will cause for people who get publicly shamed is real. Unlike heaven, where Jesus said there is joy over one sinner who repents, Within our larger cultural framework, you are stuck forever if you commit certain sins. We all know this is true. Again, I'm just talking culturally about this. I'm, I'm putting this, this cultural secularism that we live in. We don't want to give up the right to feel superior about ourselves. The cultural secularism that we swim in is very self-righteous. Because to extend grace, and Christians know this, whether we practice it or not is another matter, but to extend grace means means remembering sins no more, right? And I'm not getting into consequences here that may result. That's that's where it gets, you know. That's where we say, "Well, that's where it gets tricky." You know, I can forgive you, but can I trust you? It, we that's that's a that's all gets worked out as. As, as people uh, move through these things, uh, even where grace is followed, what I'm simply saying to you is a larger point. I'm putting the way our society largely works and reasons now. Beside this passage for us to see Paul's point in greater, in greater emphasis, and that is people who know grace cannot practice superiority at the same time. That's what he's saying. Paul is warning us, in fact, about this here. Within this paradox that God can bring belief out of unbelief, God can use a people's unbelief to create belief for others and then make that people jealous. As God does this, we cannot practice grace and superiority at the same time, those of us who know his grace. Again, consequences for our actions, what follows from guilt, the passage isn't addressing that, those variables. What is being addressed is if you come to believe in self-righteousness, you Christian, if you come to believe in self-righteousness as Israel had believed in it by Paul's time and many of our neighbors believe in it, you are unbelieving in Jesus. And the mark of that unbelief in Jesus is superiority that withholds grace from covering the guilt people incur before God and others. You end up having this list of unpardonable sins. And you're putting yourself ultimately in the place of God. And God says, Get out of my chair. This dynamic that I've been describing, what we've been watching unfold culturally for the last decade or so, the, the way secularism is today, this shaming that wants to hold people to their sins even if they're genuinely sorry, there has to be a qualitative difference between the people of the world and the people of truth on this point. And people of truth are not surprised by human sinfulness even if we grieve deeply over it. We're not surprised by it because we recognize the heart is sinful. You recognize the intentions of men and women are foolish. And so there's an opportunity here for the church to provoke some jealousy of us in that we know where to find the mercy of the one who is inexhaustible in mercy. And people are craving this. I think a lot of people are getting in high places and low, they're getting burned on the secularizing impulse to shame. And that shaming impulse, it comes from conservatives, it comes from libertarians, it comes from liberals. They all do it, they're all equal offenders. You just pick which station you want to watch it on. And that secular, it's a secularizing impulse to shame. And that secularizing impulse is anti gospel. And the way it ends up working, selectively and hypocritically, these sins are worse than these sins, and those sins, well, you could say you're sorry for those, but those, there's no sorrow you could ever engage in. These sins, you'll have to crawl to me on your hands and knees before I would even entertain forgiving you. This sin, well, you know, I'm guilty of that too, so we'll let that go. It's just madness. And the reason is because people's version of sin is completely about unrighteousness and wrongs and not about self-righteousness and the good that we think we're guilty of. People will despair over themselves as this goes on, especially when they're publicly shamed and they might think there's nowhere to turn And they will crave grace. And my prayer is that the church will see this as an opportunity and become the place where people get grace. Where people who need it find it. Paul says the reason why grace came to the Gentiles is that so Israel would see Gentiles enjoying the grace and mercy and the worship of their God and that that they would realize that their unbelief in Jesus has dislocated them from an experience of God that he held out to them. God uses unbelief to bring about belief. It's, It's not expected, but it's how he can work through this paradox. Because I'll tell you what happens in unbelief. The moralism that unbelief creates, people eventually get sick of gracelessness. They get sick of superiority and they get sick of the selectivity and they get sick of the hypocritical nature of it. And what this creates in people, God creates this in people from this stuff, is a craving for grace and for mercy that is found chiefly and only in being rightly related to God through Jesus. These are great days for the gospel. If we will lead with the gospel... Don't get superior with grace and mercy. And look again at verse 20. The last part of verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, that's Jews, neither will he spare you. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Okay, you say, this kind of scares me. What exactly is he communicating here? He's communicating attention, and tensions we have to live in. The paradox in this passage is that God can bring about belief through unbelief. I'm simplifying it and putting it that way. It's a complex passage. I realize there's a lot of nuances here but preaching needs to simplify the complex in service to a message, a point. We've seen the paradox. God can bring about belief through unbelief. The tension is right here in verse 22 where the kindness and the severity of God meet, almost like on an axis. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Verse 22, severity toward those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you. Severity toward those who've fallen, it's, it's their fault. But kindness, God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Where's the fault line for us? Well, we actually need to keep reading. Verse 23, And even they, Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. This is hopeful. But remember chapter 9? The reason we're looking at these three chapters together. Remember chapter 9, verse 16, where he says it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy? That... Belief has un, unbelief we're we're entirely responsible for, but belief. None of us get in on God's mercy through uh, being our best self, through through some sort of effort that we expend that direction. And so, if this is how mercy works, looking at verse twenty-two here in chapter eleven, if this is how mercy works. If salvation is all of grace and mercy, then there is nothing God cannot do with us, including taking it back if He wanted to. But He doesn't want to. The whole counsel of God in Scripture, taking Scripture as a whole, He doesn't want to take back anything He's given us. But the logic here is He could if He chose to, because it's His mercy to begin with. Paul wants us to square with that reality it's His mercy. We're recipients. Now, this is a little frightening for us to read. It is here in chapter 11. But note, we're we're not told to be frightened. We're told to fear. Fear is not the same thing as being frightened. Look at the end of verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. Fear and being frightened are not the same. Fear stands in awe of the gracious work of God and His mercy. And that chases the superiority right out of us. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, as Psalm 23 puts it famously. Despite ourselves, we know when we are faithless, He is faithful. Don't we know that? We know when we want our sin, He keeps showing us our Savior. What does that come out of? Comes out of fearing God, not being frightened of Him. Paul says our God is kind and severe both. That's a tension we have to respect and fearing God. Taking him seriously—that's the way we pay that respect. Not being frightened of him, because here's what happens when you get frightened of God: you start to make it about your own performance. You start to be afraid, scared that you're not good enough. You're scared you're not, and and, and so because you're not, and, and especially if you're real a type A kind of person, you know, God's going to take this away from me. That's what happens when you get frightened, not when you fear the Lord. The point of grace is we're told we're not good enough ever. So we're told to fear and in fearing God what you do is you put the emphasis on who God is and what He's done, the character of who He is and what He's done, the unendingness of that despite ourselves ongoing as sinful people. We take Him more seriously than we take ourselves. That's what it means to fear you have tension here. Tensions teach us that God is not at all like we are and yet God wants us to be with him more than we know. Tensions teach us that we're far greater sinners than we realize yet we're more loved than we can fathom. Tensions teach us that God is free to do whatever he wants. And yet he has bound himself to you and to me in Jesus Christ. Tensions teach us that our faith will fail at points. But grace will cover those failures for us even as he warns us about giving ourselves to the things that bring those failures about. The watch out here in this passage, to return to that idea I I introduced earlier, the watch out here. Is not, you know, if the church isn't sufficiently enough on mission for God, then, you know, God's going to turn to Martians and, you know, send Jesus to Mars and begin to do a work there. No, the warning here is if, if the Gentile portion of the church misuses grace to turn superior, if we start thinking that God's work originates and expires with us, God may very well give us over to ourselves as in Romans chapter 1 to our smugness and our superiority and our self-righteousness, and there'll be no fruit in that. We won't like being subject to our own pride, and that will cut us off from God, who He is and what He does. And what if that were to happen? Seek God again. Pursue His mercy. What do we see in this passage? Even as we messed-up Gentiles enjoy the grace and mercy of, of Israel's God, that is supposed to make Jews seek Him again because those who seek the Lord find Him. He says so, He guarantees it. There in verse 23, God has the power to graft them in again. God hasn't gone anywhere, He doesn't move, but to seek Him requires. We square again and again with the reality that we stand before Him by mercy and nothing else. These are the great things tensions teach us. God is not at all like we are, and yet God wants us more than we know. We're far greater sinners than we realize because we don't see our self-righteousness as sin. And we don't see the depth of our sin besides. We're far greater sinners than we realize, yet more love than we can fathom. God is free to do whatever He wants, and yet He's bound Himself to you and to me in Jesus. Just as He bound Himself to the people that He started with, and we'll come back around too at a time of his choosing. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a hard text. It's, it's got things in it that, um, that rightly give us pause. But Lord, help us in our understanding of it to have your spirit do for us what we need you to do for us and nothing that we don't. Lord, keep us from misunderstanding, keep us from misapplication. We've flown through this, and there's a lot here that requires careful thinking and reading and processing, but Lord, that we come away with the overarching points that you are doing a work in this world, and those you started with, you'll bring back in on it, and we can't wait to see that day, and Lord, that we would be found among those who pray for that, who pray for those you started with to come to know your grace and your mercy and that we would befriend them in that hope and that we would see them come to know their Savior even as you have used their unbelief to open the way to us that we can believe. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us humility. And for all the ways that you carry us and bless us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.